our situation, the enemy situation in Samara at the time, the primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, which shoots a slug through up to, I think at the time was, you know, six inches of, of armor or something like that, um, and then bounces around inside and just destroys whatever it comes in contact with. We used to say it travels at the speed of light with the heat of the sun. I rolled to my right and I was frantically grabbing for this thing. Somehow, some way, I put my right hand on it and threw it and quickly yelled, grenade. But before I could get the nade part out of grenade, I said, gruh, and it exploded in midair. Hi, and welcome to The Spear a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and The Spear is our platform to explore the combat experience. Each episode includes a single one-on-one interview with a guest who walks us through a particular event and their role in it. A battle, a firefight, a mission. It's a first-person account of combat. In this episode, MWI's Captain Jake Moraldi talks to Major Nick Esslinger, In October 2008, Major Esslinger was a platoon leader on his first deployment in Iraq. One day, while on patrol in the city of Samara, he looked up just in time to see a grenade thrown almost directly at him. What he did next is pretty incredible, as is the whole story you're about to hear. Before we hear that story, a couple quick things. First, if you like this and other episodes of The Spear, please take just a second, head over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and give us a rating or leave a review. And second, as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. All right, here's Captain Jake Moraldi and Major Nick Esslinger. Major Esslinger, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to sit down and talk to us about uh, the events of October 1st, 2008. Um, what I'd like to start out with is just to give us enough context to understand the, the rest of your story. Where were you? What, what generally was happening uh, on your deployment in 2008 before this event? Yeah, I'd arrived uh, post-ranger school to Fort Campbell in about May of 2008 and spent one month going through Eagle training that all 101st Airborne Eagles needed to complete. Uh, I think they called it IRT, Individual Readiness Training, before we could get on an airplane and join our unit overseas. So at the time, uh, my brigade, my battalion specifically, 2nd at 327, uh, no slack is the motto, they were deployed already for about nine months um, when I arrived at Fort Campbell on Rear D. So after that training, flew over, joined my battalion on July 4th, 2008, who had, as I said, done continuous operations uh, at the tip of the Sunni Triangle in and around Samara, Iraq for about nine months at that time, Uh, focused on uh, reducing sectarian violence between the Shias and the Sunnis uh, that had continued to linger because of the, you know, the the explosion of the Golden Mosque, the Al-Askari Mosque in Samara proper in February 2006. We still had remnants of that sectarian violence happening in and around the city. our battalion's footprint, we had a company size element, Cougar Company, uh, which I would ultimately join uh, in Samara proper 
and then Alpha, uh, Bravo, and Delta on the peripheries of the city, um, conducting you know company size operations and platoon operations. Um, yeah, I, I, I rode around with the battalion commander for I don't know uh, about four or five days. You know, Colonel McGee at the time really enjoyed sort of assessing his lieutenants on a personal level, uh, getting to know us and our personalities, which would inform his decision on where we would ultimately land as a platoon leader. Yeah. What was that like coming into country when the when the unit had already been there for a while? Uh, it was, uh, what's the word? Um, uh, not a lot of pressure, but you know, it was, the word is escaping me right now, but I felt a lot of, uh, it was like an uphill battle. Um, I knew that the platoon leader had already been there for nine months had trained them for that deployment. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I soon learned that he would become the company XO, so he would remain in the company, uh, which creates its own dynamic amongst the new platoon leader and uh, the former platoon leader who is now sort of your intermediate raider um, and still around the platoon all the time. So. Yeah, it put in an additional level of, uh, of stress on me as a platoon leader, wanting to prove myself uh, nine months into a deployment, mm-hmm. taking over a platoon who is combat-hardened and experienced uh, beyond anything that I was as a result of simply uh, eyeballing in ranger school. Sure. Yeah. So when you did take up that platoon leader job, what, what was that like trying to, for lack of a better term, kind of win those, those guys over, integrating yourself into a platoon that had been there for, for nine months and had trained up with a, a different platoon leader? And what was that experience like? So I think as, as most officers do earlier in their career, and even as cadets maybe, uh, we think about that first moment in front of our platoon and what we might say. And you sort of war game it and plan it out and script it even. I mean, I was into the weeds a little bit on how I was going to act and speak in front of my platoon for the first time. But once I was finally assigned to Cougar Company, uh, I was riding around with the, the acting CO at the time. Captain Kurtzman, our commanding officer, was on leave. So the acting CO, the current XO, uh, was taking me around, showing me the AO among Samara. And over the net, ultimately two days before I took first platoon, um, there was a RKG-3 attack and one of our platoon sergeants uh sergeant first class chevalier in third platoon uh was struck by the rkg3 in his vehicle and ultimately a fallen angel so immediately uh, a senior leader in cougar company was killed uh they had not had a casualty in a few months at that point several casualties earlier in their deployment at that point it had been a little bit the company was hit very hard commanders on leave um, it sent emotional ripples throughout the company, including my platoon that I was going to take over 48 hours later. So point being, whatever I had scripted was no longer appropriate. So in a moment of reflection, I thought to myself, this is not about what I want the platoon to hear from me. This is about what my platoon needs to hear from me. So I pulled in the squad leaders and the platoon sergeant. And I thought this might be a good step in building relationships with them. Although putting myself at risk maybe by showing a little weakness, I guess. Looking back, I didn't. But um, I just asked them simply, what do you think the platoon needs to hear from me as their new platoon leader right now? 
And so they, they sort of made some recommendations. I took all of them as a, as a smart new platoon leader should, <laughs> listening to his squad leaders for the first time. And, and that's what I said the first time in our small gym when I, when I addressed our platoon for the first time. So when did you actually uh, take over the platoon? Uh, estimate, I uh, landed July 4th at Spiker, joined my colonel for a few days, rode around with the CO, so probably, I don't know, a week later. Okay. Uh, around July 11th, So kind of mid- mid-July. Yep. Um, so before the events of, of the 1st of October, you had a little bit of time with your, with your platoon um, before the grenade attack that we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, how successful do you feel like you were in the, in the intervening time kind of integrating yourself into the platoon? Yeah, I was waiting for a moment to prove myself tactically and to be able to step up and do all those things that an infantry platoon leader is expected to do, but it just wasn't coming, uh, which is a great, fantastic thing. Mm-hmm. Um, our situation, the enemy situation in Samara at the time, the primary threat was RKG-3 grenades which to shortly describe what this thing is, is a cylindrical device, uh, about a foot, foot and a half long. On the top end of that device is sort of a container. Imagine uh, an oil filter size container with a pole that sticks out the bottom of it. At the tip of the container end is a little parachute that deploys once it is thrown from the handle towards the target to stabilize the device so that the point of impact where the projectile portion of uh, of the grenade impacts appropriately its target, shoots a slug through up to, I think at the time was, you know, six inches of, of armor or something like that, um, and then bounces around inside and just destroys whatever it comes in contact with. We used to say it travels at the speed of light with the heat of the sun, because this thing literally melted MRAPs at times uh, once it would catch fire and so forth and rounds cooking off. Mm-hmm. So that was the primary threat both to our vehicles and to our our personnel. Um, However, those were only about two to three times a month were we receiving those types of attacks, uh, very infrequent compared to surrounding areas with similar threats. And the IED threat was low. The small arms fire threat was low. We had proven ourselves superior to any, you know, uh, small arms fire attacks or IED sort of coordinated attacks. Um, But I wasn't experiencing that with 1st Platoon. That was all previous, you know, and that sort of wrapped up in terms of a high level of op tempo for enemy attacks in about the springtime. Mm -hmm. So, you know, our our continuous presence in Samara, as well as the uprising of, or the the increase in effectiveness, I should say, of the Iraqi police, Mm -hmm. the Iraqi army, and this new program, uh, a friendly militia called the Sons of Iraq in Samara, uh, in conjunction with our efforts to T-wall the entire city, mm-hmm. surrounded by concrete, uh, contributed to that enemy sit temp. So, yeah. Okay. So, from taking your platoon to this this grenade attack, it really wasn't. You were kind of integrated in, but you didn't feel like. You were, you were getting the full infantry experience, for, for lack of a better term here. Yeah, to some extent we, we did. Uh, just to sort of describe the way we operated as a company, our commander uh, put us on a rotation of four different types of operations. Mm-hmm. And each rotation uh, would last four days. And so our four platoons in the company would rotate through these. The first rotation was Samara. 
you would be the platoon responsible for the inner city limits. If there were um, if there were time sensitive targets in the city, whoever platoon was on Samara rotation would get that target and be able to execute that target. Uh, otherwise, if there was nothing time sensitive, you would patrol Samara and gather intel about these RKG three attacks, and work with the locals and partner with them on patrols to again gather reconnaissance. The second rotation was force protection, uh, force protection for patrol base Olson, which is where our our company was located on the on the east side of the Tigris River, on the far west edge of Samara. The third rotation was long range patrol. Um, we would not enter the city. Uh, we would not enter the platoon's AO that was responsible for the city. We would patrol and really do census operations, mm -hmm. you know, bats and hides, trying to, to count people in villages uh, up in the northern desert predominantly. And then the fourth rotation was T-Wallen. Uh, you would spend four days going out at night under limited viz, pick up as many trucks as came up from Baghdad with T-Walls on them, and basically conduct security ops for those T-Wall cranes uh, and operators. So those four, at the time, uh, we would rotate you know, every four days between them. So I was getting experience as a platoon leader. Our most favorite of those rotations across platoon leaders was the Samara rotation, right? Every, every 16 days, you got to spend four more in the city, whereas where uh, we felt the biggest impact or that we were having the biggest impact. And for me, selfishly, uh, was where I, I felt that I could display my tactical and technical competence and be the leader that I had hoped to be uh, on a combat deployment with the 101st Airborne when we were conducting Force Pro, or although very, very important, or you know, taking fingerprints and taking pictures out in the desert for four days in a row that wasn't exactly what everyone wanted to do. So that's a little background. So let's jump to, to the 1st of October. Which of those rotations were you on and, and what was the mission you were going to do that day? So the 1st of October, uh, we were on Samara City rotation. I don't remember how many days into that rotation we were, um, but I do remember there were no time sensitive targets. And 4th platoon, just prior during their rotation in the city a couple days prior, they had received an RKG-3 attack. Thankfully, it went over the hood of their lead MRAP and did not you know, inflict any casualties or damage to our vehicles. So I remember the task and purpose essentially for that Samara rotation, that four-day rotation, was really to go to those areas where the attack on 4th Platoon was and try and find out who was the thrower, who was the spotter, where were these things coming from, which was really a, a greater task and purpose to understand the supply routes and things like that of the RKG-3s. Um, so on October 1st specifically, we were, we were tasked to do a partner patrol, uh, either daytime or nighttime, and ultimately do two patrols that day, one day, one night. I could choose as a platoon leader which of the patrols I wanted to partner with the Iraqi police for. We went out that morning unpartnered. Uh, we were out for four to six hours. We spent time in the northern area of Samara, a neighborhood called Kadassia, um, just going essentially door, door to door, talking to people who were home. And typically we wouldn't find a lot of military-aged males to speak with because it's daytime. They had jobs in the city. 
they were at school, whatever it was. But there were a few that we would run into and just sit with, have tea. And I would do my thing with my interpreter and try and try and get something that was, was quality in terms of intelligence to help us out. Um, we came back to patrol base Olson uh, that afternoon, rested, refit. By this point, this was like battle drills, right? We are on a rhythm. We knew we had three or four hours, me and the platoon sergeant, to get the next patrol brief ready. Our guys um, would go to the gym, prep the vehicles for the evening patrol, and stand by for the patrol debrief. Um, our task and purpose that night was to partner with the Iraqi police on another reconnaissance patrol, hoping to find uh, more, more people in their homes that would be willing to talk to us. Uh, which we were usually successful more at nighttime because they were off work and so forth, taking care of their kids. And uh, we decided to, as we often did, we would take a squad to dismount, a squad to mount the vehicles and screen around us. Uh, I'm sure I'll talk more about the tactical piece of this. And a squad would stay back and, and basically be on rest. So whenever we left Patrol Base Olsen as a platoon, we would typically have that that sort of task organization one squad would stay back one squad would be dismounted one squad would would mount the vehicles and screen for us so i think it's important for for folks who maybe aren't as familiar as, with samara as maybe a place like baghdad what what does samara sort of look like it's a fairly large city um what was the terrain you were going out into when you were conducting this evening patrol Absolutely. Samara was a war-torn city. Um, potholes everywhere from years of IED attacks, bullet holes along several several walls all over the city from small arms fire attacks, um, trash everywhere. People stole electricity from the city, so phone wires everywhere, electrical wires everywhere. Our gunners would literally have, we would have to slow the vehicles down uh, on many streets so that the gunners could navigate the wires um, and move the 50 cal barrel underneath them and so forth. Um, so that, that hindered our movements a lot of times. Um, although it was a very uh, populated city, a lot of the buildings were no larger than four stories. Uh, the tallest structure there was the spiral minaret uh, a religious site um, for the Shia that was in the northwest sector. Um, but in terms of, of sort of other terrain descriptions, the roads were pretty narrow, um, as, a, as an urban area would be expected to be. Um, most neighborhoods were dense with houses, but mostly one story with courtyards in the front of them with a courtyard gate that, that shielded uh, visual contact from inside the courtyard or into the home itself. So you mentioned as you're preparing to go out on this evening patrol that the main enemy threat in the area you guys are operating in is really these grenade attacks. Mm -hmm. um, and you also said that they tended not to happen with great frequency, that there would be a couple of months um, and that one had just happened to 4th Platoon fairly recently. As you guys went out, how did you understand the, the enemy situation that you were going out into for that evening patrol based on 
historical patterns and what you'd seen in the past. Yeah, the, the enemy situation we understood at the time was that uh, they were targeting our lead vehicle and our convoys with these RKG-3s and that they would use uh, cover and a, a, a thrower essentially would get as close to uh, the nearest point of cover to our vehicles and then throw it typically over a wall or over a barrier uh, and then run in another direction as quickly as possible. And we, we suspect that he had a, had a spotter on a radio telling him how close our vehicles were to, to him at that point. Um, we had adapted our TTPs knowing the enemy's sort of TTPs. So we were starting to dismount um, around our vehicles and move at a slower rate of speed so that we could increase the likelihood of engaging these throwers uh, with more eyeballs on the ground, right? We could push out our perimeter a little bit so that at a minimum, the throwers couldn't get close enough to throw this thing accurately to hit our vehicles. And that was proving to be effective, and that was probably why we were only receiving two to three RKG-3 attacks per month uh, when it was more before that, before that adapted TTP took effect. Um, so we were always cognizant uh, as we were rolling mounted. Um, the lead gunner was our best gunner. He was constantly scanning. And when terrain and METTC permitted, we would dismount and uh, and push out a perimeter. But it, it it limited our speed dramatically. And 138 degree temperatures, you can't have soldiers on the ground moving under weight uh, for that long without rotating them into some air conditioning and so forth. So it was a decision point by the platoon leader of each platoon when to dismount and when not to. And we knew the roads or the areas of Samara where the threat was greater and where we didn't. And we knew how routes to take to avoid those areas if we needed to get to the far edge of the city quickly um, or to maximize time on the ground. So this night, October 1st, 2008, our evening patrol, we took a southern route uh, across the city of Samara to the far east neighborhood called Jabiria 2. We did not dismount, push out a perimeter en route. Um, we did stop at patrol base Yuvani which was sort of the southern center of Samara to pick up uh, a small squad, about six Iraqi policemen to partner with that night. Um, so we SP'd about 1900, picked up the Iraqi policemen at, at patrol base Yuvani about 1920, spent a short amount of time doing our rehearsals, um, and then pushed out to Jabiria too, and probably dismounted around 1945 or so. Yeah in the evening. Okay. So walk me through after you SP, what, how did the mission progress? And then when the grenade attack happened, how, how did that play out? Yeah, Tun Sergeant and I had planned our, our vehicle dismount point uh, and where we were going to go that night. We picked a neighborhood called Jabiria 2. We hadn't been there in a little while. And at this point, uh, we wanted to just see if, if we could get some intelligence uh, more about these RKG-3s, right? That's the primary threat. That's our task and purpose. Let's figure out how to defeat this threat. Um, so because we hadn't been there in a while, we we're going to Jabiria 2. We chose, based on imagery, a vehicle dismount point, and then the platoon sergeant came up with a plan for how he was going to screen um, around the dismounted elements movement. So I was always, as a platoon leader, the dismounted patrol leader, and the platoon sergeant was the mounted element patrol leader. He would stay with the vehicles with whatever squad. This night it was 
it was first squad mounted with a platoon sergeant and third squad was on the ground with me. So as we progressed from patrol base Yuvani towards our video, um, no contact, uh, nothing out of the ordinary. And as was normal, there wasn't a lot of people out on the streets at this time of night, um, except, you know, mostly sons of Iraq manning their, their checkpoints throughout the city. So we passed through those checkpoints, made it to our video pretty, pretty quickly, um, and then got on the ground and the vehicles started their, their screening movements. And we maintained contact uh, with the vehicles at all times. Anytime we moved, we would notify them. So we came to our first house that, uh, that I chose uh, and spent a little time having some tea, talking to the elders of the household. And it was nothing significant, nothing significant to report. So, you know, I contacted 13 Sergeant Heath and said, hey, let's keep moving. We eventually moved east a little bit more and then turned north in Jabiria to down this alley. Um, pretty long alley, I'd say, I don't know, four or 500 meter road. Uh, lined on each side by four to six foot, uh, or I guess I should say six to eight foot or so, uh, mud walls, as was common in the area. And on the other sides of those walls were courtyards, and then behind those were homes. And so we would move down this alley, and uh, we conducted a short halt and spread out, um, maintained security posture, and I pointed behind me to a courtyard gate that I wanted 1-3 to go knock on and see if the, the occupants of the home would, one, be there, and two, let us in and come chat. Uh, I guess I should probably talk about the array of our forces at this point. Sure. Um, so, again, we're in an alley, and we're moving north. We conduct this short halt, and because we're in sort of a ruck march formation, right, I have half the element push to the left, half the element push to the right with about five meters of spread in between the person in front of you and the person behind you on each side of the, the alley. And so when we conducted our short halt, you know, we have approximately nine guys on the left, nine guys on the right spread across 40, 50 meters. Everyone kind of just took a knee right there because um, we didn't think we'd be there long because we thought we'd get access and start moving into the compound or the courtyard, excuse me. So where I had taken up my short halt, I was moving on the left side of the alley uh, towards the center of the formation, which was my typical spot to maintain situational awareness. Uh, I had come up across a 90 degree angle um, of a mud wall that turned immediately left at 90 degrees and created another wall. I faced this opening area where there was no home. There was no courtyard gate. Uh, imagine home, 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 no home, 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 home. Uh, it was just a plot where nothing was there. It was just this open dirt plot, probably about 20 meters wide, about 20 meters deep, um, where a home could have, could have been. And so I'm posted on my knee facing this open area. The courtyard to which we want to enter is now behind me across the alley, maybe 15, 20 meters across the alley. It wasn't too wide, about Two MRAPs could fit okay, but three MRAPs would get kind of tight in that alley, um, side by side. So that's sort of how we were postured. Uh, everyone was on a knee facing and covering their sector of fire. Because of how we were arrayed in the terrain that night, at that moment, 
I was actually responsible for that open plot for security. On the back side of that plot was another six to eight foot wall, and it was surrounded on all three sides by six to eight foot wall, except the side facing the street, if you will. So, okay. So you're pulling security into this sort of open courtyard area. You have your dismount element along the street. Um, your, v, your vehicle element is back a little ways, I'm assuming. Um, what, what happened at that point? So 1-3, he got up off, off his knee, started moving toward the courtyard gate behind me. I kicked my interpreter over to 1-3 to help with the conversation of the, of the homeowners, uh, whether we could come in and chat with them. Uh, my RTO crept closer to me, and uh, Sergeant Heath would always move with a buddy as well. So he had a rifleman, I believe it was Specialist Holton at the time with him, um, and so they started knocking on the gate. And so I'm still on my knee facing my sector of fire, uh, waiting for Sergeant Heath to come over the radio quickly and say, hey, we're good, sir, let's move in. Um, that took a little while. Um, and I sort of, as I was on my knee facing my sector of fire, uh, I looked, I leaned my my head down to my left shoulder where my microphone was and I pressed the push to talk and I said 1316 what do we got and as I released the push to talk and raised my eyes back into my sector of fire I saw a hand come up over the far wall of the open plot and throw something uh, I immediately in my mind thought it was an RKG3 grenade because that was the current threat. As I saw this projectile, at the same time, I pushed off and sort of stood up from a kneeling position. I pushed off with my left foot. And as I pushed off, I took sort of a quick step to my right and then I just dove to my right. My hands were off my weapon as I was going through the air and I landed on my right side as, as I hit the ground. And the projectile landed a few yards in front of me and rolled into my side chest of my on my right side as on the as I was on the ground horizontally as the projectile made contact with my IOTV I rolled to my right which essentially put me on top of the projectile and I was frantically grabbing for this thing somehow some way I put my right hand on it, maneuvered to a sort of a sit-up, half sit-up crunch position, and threw it sort of like you, you know, not a full overhand throw, but to the side, and quickly yelled, grenade. But before I could get the nade part out of grenade, I said, gruh, and it exploded in midair. And, you know, the concussion took my breath away, um, my ears were ringing, there was dust everywhere, and everyone was just sort of frozen in time for a few seconds. I got my bearings right, and the first person to come to me was my medic, Doc Millen, and I'm trying to give instructions to Sergeant Heath to move half of his squad 
down back down the alley, move south, cut back west, and come up behind the wall where the throw came from. But Doc wouldn't let me do that because Doc wanted to check me for blood, uh, basically basically wounds. I kept telling Doc, get off of me, get off of me, go check other people and report back. This all happened very quickly. And as you can imagine, uh, my heart was trying to come out of my chest, but I was cognitively thinking to myself or consciously thinking to myself, remain calm. Tell 1-3 what he needs to do. Think about where you need to be right now. Report to the vehicles what just happened. You know, maintain, calm, cool, collected, PL. Be that guy right now. This is important. And that's what was going through my head. So uh, that's what I tried to do. Um, yeah. So was anybody else affected by the by the explosion of the grenade? Or was it was it far enough away from other people that you were sort of the only one in the blast area? So I certainly thought that Specialist Crowell uh, would have been wounded. He was uh, only, he was across from me. He was in the formation anyway. He was to my, my right as I was facing the plot. I thought he could have been wounded. I, my RTO was quite close to me. I didn't know if he had followed me towards this thing as I dove uh, or if Specialist Crowell was moving to me or if someone was trying to help me. I don't know. Uh, I couldn't see. I wasn't paying attention. Um, but. I certainly feared for casualties. So as when Doc Millen came back to me maybe a minute later uh, and said, no blood, no wounds, I, I was incredibly surprised. Uh, I said, are you sure? Are you sure? You've, you've touched everybody. He said, yes, sir. No, no blood, no wounds. I said, awesome. Send it to the truck. Because uh, 1-7 in the mounted element was our, was our touch point with Cougar Main back at Patrol Base Olsen. I wasn't going to start getting on the horn with, with my company. I needed to leave the fight on the ground. So 1-7 could take care of that as long as the RTO was sending good reports. <clears throat> so at that point, okay, no casualties. Excellent. Let's get this motherfucker. So 1-3 went back down. Uh, he was already executing with, that, with little guidance from me. I stayed on site uh, to sort of exploit it a little bit with the Iraqi police. Uh, they, they stayed with me. My RTO and my TURP stayed with me and uh, I think a rifle team. Um, to secure the area. My RTO had already, you know, he was very well trained. He had already called the vehicles to come secure us uh, or provide isolation, if you will, around us so that no, no further attacks could happen. Um, so all these things were happening very simultaneously. Casualty assessment, 1-3 uh, is in pursuit of the enemy and 1-7 is moving vehicles to secure our, fo our formation. Um, once Cougar Maine uh, received word of troops in contact in Jabiria 2, they, you know, I, I think our fire support officer back at Cougar Maine um, got on the horn with whatever available aircraft was passing through at the time. We had no dedicated aircraft for this mission because we didn't think, you know, this would happen. Um, and so two F-16s were passing over, uh, just following along the Tigris River, so those got redirected to me. And, uh, you know, one of the coolest things that ever happened to me as a platoon leader was RTO hands me the mic and is like, I've got two F-16 pilots on the horn wanting instructions. You know, I've been a platoon leader since July 11th, uh, right around then. This is October 1st now. Nothing like this had happened. And now it's all happening. So, again, I'm trying to maintain situational awareness and do what I was trying to do. So I, I simply asked uh, the F-16 pilots, uh, to do a show of force, fly low, 
an enemy, any enemy that was maybe watching our movements at that time to see if they could attack us again uh, might be deterred by that. So that's what they did. They came screaming down. It felt like they were 30 feet above us. And they asked, you know, is there anything else we could do? I said, no, I think that was fine. Um, and we continued mission. So um, at that point, uh, once one seven was on the ground, he dismounted. I went quickly with my rifle team and caught up with one three uh, to see what was happening with, in pursuit of the enemy. They, when I found them, uh, they were on the other side of the courtyard wall. Um, and I get there, and Sergeant Heath is like, "Give me a report." He's like, "Hey, sir, you know, I've only got women here with small children, um, no men. Um, you got to see this, though." And I was like, "Got I got to see what?" He's like, "Come here, sir. You got to see this." So behind that courtyard was the backyard to another home, right? This is a neighborhood, densely populated, kind of a cookie-cutter neighborhood, um, homes everywhere. So on the back side of this home uh, was, a, was a blank mud wall, and the best way I can describe it, it is hieroglyphics of how these battles were going and these illustrations. Anyway, this illustration was of essentially what just happened, except they illustrated vehicles moving along a road and there was a little fire boom thing illustrated there. And you know, there's like, it was eerie. They had basically mapped out on a wall what they were gonna do to the American patrol. Uh, you know, they had walls and homes and they had a little stick figure person with like the, his hand up, which I assume was like throwing. Mm -hmm. And that's where the fire came from on the attack. Uh, but anyway, if, if that wasn't incriminating in itself, I don't know what is. Um, so I, I knew that I needed to speak to people inside that home that the illustration was on. And so we moved inside and I knew I would only find women and children. Um, but before I really needed to make any deliberate decisions, about who to start talking with, which you're always hesitant when there's not a male home because of any sort of second and third order effects that can cause. But a woman approached my interpreter, Alex, and wanted to talk to me. And so that was a signal that I should probably talk to this woman. Mm -hmm. So we went into a, a, a private room, but she brought a, a buddy with her. I, I did not want her to be in there by herself. So she brought, I think, I don't know, maybe her sister or her daughter or something. Um, but, you know, to, to make a long story short, she told us that her son was the person who threw the grenade at us. And through some more tactical questioning of her, we discovered that her son uh, was about 17 years old and he actually worked for the Sons of Iraq uh, friendly militia that was providing security or augmenting our security uh, in Samara. So all this is, has played out from the grenade exploding to 1-3 um, maneuvering to try and, and isolate the attacker to the trucks coming forward to your medic doing what, what he's supposed to do. How do you explain sort of the automatic reaction of those guys when you as the platoon leader, the one who is supposed to be orchestrating all that, are, are at least momentarily kind of out of the fight? How do you, how do you explain that occurring? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, it might sound cliche, but 
for that platoon, those experienced members of the platoon, their training kicked in and their experience from previously in the deployment. It's almost like a light switch just went off for them as soon as they felt threatened and heard the explosion that, you know, relentless pursuit of the enemy and casualties are now the primary importance. Our task and purpose of gathering reconnaissance is over. Uh, we need to harden ourselves and get ready for a fight and pursue the enemy. And that's exactly what 1-3 did. Uh, as I said, with little guidance from me, I basically g gave him a direction to move and he started moving. He, you know, he probably read my mind about what I was going to tell him to do anyway. So he started moving, um, which is what you want. You want a fired up squad leader with experience who is going to execute until you tell him not to. And that's what he did that night. So for you personally, what did what did this experience tell you about either either yourself or about your role as the platoon leader and, and what your purpose was in, in being there? Yeah, I don't know that it informed or altered my purpose as the platoon leader. Uh, you know, the fact that I was in the position to see it come over the wall was sort of luck in a way. Um, I did not have my nods down. As our SOP went in 1st Platoon, it was the individual soldier's decision whether to operate under nods during limited visibility or have them up on top of their helmet. It was their call. Uh, there was enough ambient light in and around the city to which actually having your nods down would, would hinder your vision more than it would help it. So. Uh, looking back, you know, having my nods up probably saved my life and, and those that could have been killed or wounded uh, by the grenade. Had I said more than four or five words on my microphone and not looked up in time to see the hand come over, we would have been caught by surprise. We would not have seen it, heard it. We would have been notified by the by the blast and who knows how that would have went. Uh, thankfully, we don't have to experience that. Um, I didn't feel sort of any different after the attack in terms of my role as the platoon leader or credibility even. To myself, I felt like, okay, you, you sort of proved yourself a little bit. Uh, you, you handled the post-attack uh, situation pretty well I, I, I thought um, doing a self-assessment and you know as you might imagine my credibility with with the company and my platoon increased a little bit you know doing doing the actions that I did but really it was it was a circumstance of being in the right place at the right time and folks often ask me my commander asked me that night Nick why didn't you just move to your left and yell grenade uh, to notify the folks in your formation that you had saw this thing and, you know, remove yourself from, from the, from the, the harm. Um, I often respond, I didn't respond this way with my commander that night, but as I reflected on this over nine years now, um, imagine driving in a car with your spouse or, uh, your girlfriend and you're sort of driving along you're looking at the radio, changing the dials. And you look up and it's a red light and you quickly instinctively slam on the brakes 
and oftentimes your right hand will shoot out and try and protect the passenger from hitting their head on the dashboard or flying forward in their seat. There's no real explanation for why we do that, except that it's a reflex, right? You instinctively reflex your arm to protect the person in your passenger seat. And that night when I saw that thing come over the wall in my mind, there was no moment for pause and thinking of, do I go left? Do I go right? Do I yell? It was a reflex to stand up, dive to my right and try and get this thing away from my people. So that's why I didn't go left. Um, yes, I could have died on that grenade. Um, but that is not what happened. And that is something I, I don't ever th really think about. So. All right. Well, we have to wind up here because we kind of hit the, the amount of time we have. Um, I appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to us and being honest with your experience. And hopefully it'll be of some value to, to folks out there. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Spear. Remember, you can find and subscribe to The Spear on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with MWI on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, and check out the great new articles, podcast episodes, and more that we publish every day on the MWI website. Thanks again for listening.